Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or, last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. What's the connection between today's crisis of democracy and the rise of the internet, particularly social media? So far in this podcast, we've skirted around the issue, touching it here and there, but never really focusing directly on it. Today, however, we address this question head-on with Tom Baldwin, the former assistant editor of the London Times newspaper and the author of Control-Alt-Delete, How Politics and the Media Crashed Our Democracy. Baldwin certainly didn't pull his punches when I met him at a rather noisy London cafe adjacent to the British Houses of Parliament. He's convinced that there is indeed a close connection between the crashing of Western democracy and the rise of digital media. Tom Baldwin, the author of Control-Alt-Delete, How Politics and the Media Crashed Democracy. Tom, are you serious? Has politics and the media crashed democracy? Is democracy dead? Not dead, but it's in danger. I think what you'll see with Brexit, with Trump, with the rise of nationalism across the developed world is the product of this abusive relationship that politics and the media has had over a 30-year period with technology. Talk a little bit more about this abusive relationship. You're suggesting it's a sort of a husband-wife relationship. I mean, politics has always depended on technology. What's different today or what's been different over the last 25 years? I think what's interesting is if you go back to 1989, just at the start of this new information age, the World Wide Web was invented. Right, more important than the the Berlin Wall came down. Berners-Lee's invention is more important than what happened in Berlin, do you think? Well, I think they were part of the same age of optimism. This is when Fukuyama was talking about the end of history. Well, only an American would come up with the idea of the end of history, wouldn't it? (laughs) Or a German, perhaps. (laughs) There was this genuine and possibly even justified optimism then that this free flow of information, people, ideas across borders was actually a great progressive tide. It would mean that Rupert Murdoch wouldn't be in charge of our media anymore. It would mean that the giants of flesh and steel, you know, the internet and progress were going to march hand in hand towards a better future. And what I think is disturbing 
is that almost the opposite has happened. That at every stage since then, the information revolution has moved against democracy, has undermined democracy. Now, that's not because of something inherent in the technology itself. It's because of the relationship that I think the media have had in curating information and politics has had in exploiting information that has unpicked the seams of truth and undermined our democracy. But what about Black Lives Matter? What about Occupy? What about the Arab Spring? What about all the grassroots organizations that have begun online? Well, they're still why we have reason to be optimistic about the information age. There's lots of ways the information age could still get better. It could still be a great force for the democratization of the world. But they are almost exceptions to the rule. What we need to do is find ways to have more Black Lives Matter, more Arab Springs, and less Putins, less Trumps, less Brexits. Brexits, Trumps and Putins, they're part of the same phenomenon. Yeah, all of them have actually used liberal democracy's greatest creation, which is this fantastic information technology, to almost sort of reverse engineer it and pollute our liberal democracy. But isn't the Bannon-Trump populism, this critique of globalization, isn't that also a credible argument and just as viable, just as legitimate as Black Lives Matter, just as legitimate as Me Too? Well, I think it is simultaneously reactionary and very, very modern. What they've done is harness this technology for very, very illiberal purposes. So this technology, which probably wouldn't have come about without liberalism, certainly wouldn't have burgeoned as it has across the world without liberalism, has now been almost reverse engineered to undermine liberalism. But aren't you confusing liberalism and democracy? Those are two different things. You may be a liberal, I'm a liberal too, on the left, but democracy is a big tent. You can be a conservative, you can be a populist. Yeah, you can be a conservative, but what you're seeing now, and, and Yasha Munk actually talks about something very well in his book, which is there is a function now of illiberal Democrats and possibly undemocratic liberals. Now, I think there's a challenge for us all at this very fragile moment for our democracy to ensure that you know, the solution to the rise of populism, the solution to the way that populists are using technology to further their own very sinister motives and very, very sinister ends, that the solution should not be for liberals to become less democratic, but to become more democratic. You hear it quite a lot now, you know, from people here in Britain who think, you know, look at Brexit, why would we ever trust the people with a decision again? The danger is that liberals are going back to the place where they were actually traditionally for much of the 19th century and early 20th century, where they thought actually universal suffrage and giving the votes to people was rather too dangerous because people were too stupid or too emotional to exercise the vote. Now, I don't think that's the answer. There's a real danger that liberals will turn away from democracy because they don't like the consequences of democracy. We've got to find better ways of winning within democracies. And I think the answer is to be more democratic, not less democratic. And I can give you some examples of what I mean. It's about how progressives find ways to make emotional connections in politics again. We need to find ways of harnessing technology as well as Trump and Brexit. There's no necessary reason why populists need to be better at it than people who are making fact-based arguments. You can, of course, have a left populism as much as a right populism. An anti-capitalist populism is just, just as legitimate, isn't it? It's just legitimate, but I think populism itself, which is best defined as a sort of rejection of elites, rejection of expertise, isn't attractive. 
But I don't think the solution is to become like the populists. Solution is find ways of harnessing a fact-based, reasonable argument with an emotional connection. Now, Macron did it, Obama did it in 2008. I think Tony Blair actually did it in Britain in 1997. It is not inevitable, and I think the information environment makes it much harder because we know what travels on social media is that which appeals to prejudice, which reinforces opinion, which shocks, which surprises. Nuance doesn't always travel very well on social media. To put it politely. Yeah, yeah. But we have to find better arguments. We have is to be nuance better at essential politics. to democracy? Nuance is, I think, essential to a healthy liberal democracy. Are you suggesting there's such a thing as an illiberal democracy, as in Hungary or Poland? America's in danger of becoming a liberal democracy. You're seeing signs of it in Britain now where judges who dared to try and enforce the law in the Brexit process were put on the front page of the Daily Mail and declared to be enemies of the people. But isn't that just the end of democracy? There's nothing illiberal about it. Just a failure of democracy. Well, I think democracy, the large part of the democratic failure has been in this relationship with the information age. From the very outset, liberal Democrats somehow thought that they needed to back away from any kind of form of regulation of the internet. Now, from Bill Clinton's Telecommunications Act in 1996, they could do no harm. Safe harbour, so no accountability to these platforms. And I think it's fascinating, the biggest transformation since the Industrial Revolution has gone through without touching the sides of democratic debate until very recently. When you look at the Industrial Revolution, Everywhere it travelled, democracy followed. Because the deal was, if you wanted people working in the factories, if you wanted people to fight your wars, you needed to give them some stake in the debate. And that is why democracy followed with technological progress. This technological progress seems to be reversing that. That's a very strong statement. Are you suggesting that everywhere the digital revolution goes, democracy fails? It seems to be that technology is shaking the screws loose of democracy. And there are solutions, but it means that democracy and technology need to repair this abusive relationship. Are the solutions all regulatory? Are you talking about much stricter or certainly the beginnings of real regulation on the Silicon Valley giants? I think some of them are regulatory. So I'll give you three examples of regulations I'd like to see. First one in Britain, we have a very long tradition of banning political advertising on TV and radio. Now, no one thinks our politics is a worse place for not having the kind of attack ads that have done so much to pollute American political life for the last 30 or 40 years. And we just haven't had them. We've had party political broadcasts, which are quite boring and they're heavily regulated. We don't have advertising on TV and radio. Why is it that ban cannot be applied to social media too? Social media advertising and politics is the most lethal communications weapon ever invented. It's far more insidious than TV advertising because it can be targeted, it appears in your newsfeed, it appears alongside pictures of your children, alongside your most treasured memories. It is the most effective tool if used properly and I see no reason why we just can't have a blanket ban. Plus we don't always know whether it is advertising or real content, the two are often muddled. Totally and you have dark posts which no one can see. I mean I'll give you an example. Hillary Clinton varied her Facebook ads in 2016 66,000 times. Now, that sounds like a lot. Donald Trump varied his Facebook ads over 6 million times. Now, when people talk about regulating political advertising on the internet, there is no regulator on earth that could possibly scrutinize that. There's no commission which could oversee those number of ads. And indeed, there's no one actually accountable for it because this has been done by AI and machine learning. So there's no one person in a campaign who's responsible for putting the ads out anymore. The AI is working out which ad works best for which individual based on vast amount of data 
Those ads are seen by no one but those individuals. Now, maybe two years down the line, someone might find some dark post. By that time, that person's been elected or that referendum's happened and it's too late. The solution is to do what we've done in this country with broadcasting, which is to ban political advertising on the internet. So that's one example of a regulation I'd like to see. I'd also like to see better regulation in, in the relationship between politics and the internet in terms of the use and collection of data. Now, people talk about Cambridge Analytica as if it's like the only abuse. The reason why I think Cambridge Analytica is a bit of a red herring is because Donald Trump didn't need to use Cambridge Analytica because he had Facebook. Facebook staff were embedded in the Trump campaign, showing him how to use every single button and gizmo that Facebook had got. Facebook can know how to exploit their data better than any company like Cambridge Analytica because it's their data. They know how to use it. So I think that campaigns should almost have like Olympic-style drugs tests. You know, there should be spot checks on campaigns to see what data they're using, when and how. Now, of course, the Russians are quite good at getting around those drugs tests in the sports too. And I'm not saying it's a panacea, but it's a regulation that I think would make a difference. Another regulation I would do is to put a, a legal obligation on social media companies to verify accounts. I think that would take a lot of the trolling out. I think it would take lots of the bots out. I think it would take a lot of the shrillness out of political debate. But I don't believe that's enough. So you say, is it just regulation? No. The bigger solution is this, that if we're going to repair this relationship, we have to recognize it's no longer a sealed game. China is like 10 to 15 years away from outstripping Silicon Valley in its technology. Last year, trust in Chinese government, trust in Chinese media went up, I can't remember the exact figure, 25-30%. Just as trust in American media and trust in American government went down by a similar proportion. At the moment, they're winning. Is this the new Cold War? At least in terms of the debate between market democratic capitalism and a centralized authoritarianism. And I think it's going to be waged for information, not by... But the great game, the great debate will be between the Chinese model and the Western model. And look, Beidou, Tencent and Alibaba, the Chinese internet giants. Now, China at the moment is introducing a complete system of surveillance over its entire citizenry. You will get your housing, your job prospects, your social benefits based on every keystroke you've ever made, how much porn you've watched, what social media you've posted. Now, that is horrifying Orwellian nightmare. Are they into punishing porn in China? It's about judging whether you're a good citizen. And good citizens can't watch porn. Well, I don't have access to the full algorithm on this. I'm not sure anyone does. In the end, I'd rather have Mark Zuckerberg surveilling my data and wringing his hands in public about issues of privacy than whoever the chief executive of Tencent is. Well, that's not saying much. No, it's not. But I think Mark Zuckerberg and people working at Facebook and Google and elsewhere are essentially good people. Now, the trouble is a bad system beats a good person every time. And I've read what Mark Zuckerberg has said about the Trump election. I went around the Facebook headquarters in Silicon Valley and I was struck by how hurt and puzzled these rather nice, shiny-faced liberal people were that they had brought about the election of a president that none of them have voted for. Almost certainly none of them have voted for. And in the end, if we're going to heal this relationship, there's one big change I'd like to see, which is I don't think politics can regulate the internet effectively because, I don't want to sound trite, but technology moves at the speed of electrons and politics moves at the speed of elections. And you, know, you only have to look at Zuckerberg's testimony to Congress and the smirk on his face when he's asked questions by Nigerian senators about how he makes a profit to realize that politics ain't really going to get a grip on this fast. The solution 
has to be at base level. So Tim Berners-Lee's talked about this. Mustafa Suleiman, a guy at Google DeepMind in London, he's talked about this idea too, which is to change the business model. If our free markets, if our free speech are going to survive and prosper in this technology age, in this information age, we have to build into that technology a legal obligation for them to do public good. It has to be built into every algorithm that's produced, everything that they do, every product they come up with. So rather than testing it from top down, saying, oh, I'm now going to regulate this or that, it is built into it at ground level. And I think that's the way... Legally, it should be required. Yeah, so look, there's lots of public, there's lots of legal tests of what's in a public interest already. Courts can apply a public interest test to all kinds of utilities. They but do this it already. Exist in, this doesn't exist in newspapers, and yet newspapers have been relatively responsible. You're an ex-journalist. You work for The Times, a Murdoch paper. I, I think anyone who's watched the British press over the last 30 years would recognise that the British press has been deeply irresponsible. So this and should this, be built this, into this the press was, too. And this, this is why I say this has been a 30-year abusive relationship. Look, you're a scepticism in this country. The author of it, the person who should take more credit for it than anybody else, is Boris Johnson. So 1989, the year the Berlin Wall fell, the, the year Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web, was also the year that Boris Johnson arrived in Brussels as the Daily Telegraph's European correspondent and started making up stories about Brussels regulating the condom to impose on the Great British penis or banning prawn cocktail flavour crisps. It was bollocks then, is bollocks now. And that's what brought about Brexit 30 years later because it made the Conservative Party go mad. But you're conflating Boris Johnson with the entire media. I think one could legitimately argue today that some of the institutions doing the best work in fighting fake news are traditional newspapers in the US, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, in the UK, uh, the Guardian. Isn't today the, the traditional curated top-down media, aren't they part of the solution rather than the problem? Look, I think there's lots of brilliant journalists. I, I still regard myself as a journalist, probably not a brilliant one, but I love journalists. Journalists are my best friends, but... The way the press has behaved, the way the media has behaved the last 30 years has been a major part of the problem. And I think it's a function of the information age. Why is it that Boris Johnson and Rush Limbaugh simultaneously started unpicking the seams of truth in the media? Because the media was expanding massively. 1989 was also the year, and there's a big pivot point, when Sky News started in Britain, 24-7 TV coverage. Now, I always tell the story about how when President Kennedy did a broadcast to the nation during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, I think. The closest the world ever got to a nuclear apocalypse. After all that, what happened? The TV stations went back to the schedule and there was no more news until the next day. Now you have 24-7 talking points, controversies, CNN, let's get a panel of people shouting at each other. Every moment has turned into a drama and a crisis. It becomes very difficult to govern. The way politics responded to that vast expansion of the media was to try and control information. So you got this spin, you got this message discipline, you got this attempt to impose itself on information. And the combined effect of a media which was, frankly, making more stuff up, and politicians who are trying to clamp down on that, I think destroyed a lot of public trust in something that's essential for democracy. So, yes, I do think the way the media has behaved badly. But do we have any positive models? The New York Times, for example, or The Post, or The Guardian, or even The Wall Street Journal, which, whose politics you may not agree with? I think they are positive models, but I worry about them now. I've always turned to New York Times for what I regard as the best attempt that any journalist is making, probably anywhere in the world, to write what is true. 
I think that, again, a function of the information age is they're trying to work out how to keep their business model together, trying to work out how to stay afloat. So, you know, for quite a long time, we've seen this period where a lot of journalism has become not an act of investigating or reporting, but an act of pointing. They've jumped on trending items to get by on the dregs of the internet. So I tell a story in my book about a very respectable paper writing a story about a triple-breasted woman in Florida, which it knew to be untrue, simply because it could get some cheap clicks and shares. Now, some cheap the, cleavage, right? It, 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 well, yeah, it wasn't even a real cleavage. The solution, which the old press has now come up with, is paywalls. And what you're seeing with the New York Times and the Washington Post is this Trump bump. They're seeing subscriptions go through the roof. Which is the a good thing, isn't it? It's a good thing that they're surviving. But the danger is this that there's now a cliff edge developing between people who are ready to pay for their information and everyone else who's surviving at the bottom of the cliff on clickbait, fake news, and pornography, if we're talking about that again. And I think that's part of the division in our democracy now. It's why in America, liberals can get ever more outraged about Donald Trump, but he continues to have 40% support, which ain't bad. Because of this Trump bump, I think there's a danger that they get sucked into almost replicating the shrillness of the president. When the New York Times is declaring him to be a liar on its front page, that's not what I've always bought the New York Times for. I do think actually the best model is a regulated model like the BBC. The BBC is full of flaws. I phoned up the BBC in my current job, I'm working on a campaign, to complain to the BBC. Why? Because I know they listen and I know they care about getting it right. I fear for the liberal press in America as much as anything else because I love it, but I'm worried that it's becoming sucked into being opposition. Do you know one of the most interesting facts I've read is the single best determinant now, whether you're a Democrat or Republican in the US, is whether you trust the media. So Democrats now, I think, I think the exact, I can't remember the exact figure, but I think trust in the media among Democrats is something like 75%. Trust in the media among Republicans is 18%. If you asked one question of someone to work out whether they're Democrat or Republican, do you trust the media, is the single best question you can ask. When you get that degree of polarization around the traditional gatekeepers of information, I think it's incredibly dangerous. What about the responsibility of citizens in our digital democracy? It's all very well blaming Silicon Valley or Rupert Murdoch or Donald Trump or Facebook. But ultimately, aren't we all as voters responsible for making sense of the world? And rather than buying that extra cup of coffee in the morning, we should be subscribing to a high-quality newspaper to understand the way the world works. Yes, and lots of people do. The problem you've got is many people don't. And how are we going to ensure that everyone has access to good quality information? I think the, one of the worst things that's happened in the media is the hollowing out of local newspapers. Yeah, that, the direct function of how Facebook and Google and Craigslist have basically taken their income away from them. Now, if you go to a place, I went to a town in Wales called Port Talbot, where the local newspaper closed down, I think, in 2009. They don't have anyone covering their local councils, anyone covering their local court. It's very difficult to see how local democracy can continue to function in those circumstances. People are surviving on Facebook groups where rumors fly around about immigrants you know, capturing dogs for dog fights, which are untrue, but there's no one to rebut them. There's no one to say, no, that's not true. And again, another proposal I would make, and I think it's a, quite a simple reform, is a very small tax on Google and Facebook profits to pay for something like the BBC producing online 
fact-based, impartial news which will cover local councils, which will cover local courts, and actually keep the information alive. You know, we keep this sort of flow of free information and good information, which is essential for the functioning of any healthy democracy. And what about then the responsibility of citizens? It's all very well having all these materials that you're calling for, high quality BBC news, but don't people have to change too? to strengthen democracy or save democracy? I'm always wary of people in politics laying responsibility on the individual to bring about change. If we didn't have taxes, we wouldn't have public services. I don't believe individual responsibility. You know, you might get some charitable donations for the health, education and welfare of the poor like we had in Victorian England. I know what I'd rather have. I'd rather have a tax-based NHS system. That does involve laws. It does involve governments. It does involve politics. Now, of course, individuals should be more responsible. There should be more education in schools to be able to determine how you read information, to be able to distinguish between fake news and real news. Yeah, sure, people need to learn how to be better citizens. But I think it's been politicians and journalists and people in power who've screwed us up, not people. It's been screwed up for people. And there's a responsibility on all of us, particularly people in power, to sort this mess out, not just say, oh, it's up to the individual. Hi, my name is Steffi Czerny, and I'm the founder of the DLD Conferences. DLD is short for Digital Life Design and explores how the digital age fundamentally changes our world. Founded in Munich in 2005, DLD is now a globally connected community of thinkers, doers, and communicators. We host conferences in Munich, New York, Tel Aviv, Singapore, and Brussels. And we are very proud of our interdisciplinary outlook and even more so of our track record of discovering trend topics early on. Andrew Keane is a long-time, long-term DLD friend who has done many interviews at DLD conferences. If you like this podcast, you should join one of our events. Our motto for this year is optimism and courage. We want to put a really positive spin on recent technological developments from AI through blockchain to quantum computing and discuss which impact they have on business as well as politics and society. We are expecting 1,200 attendees from around the world and 180 international speakers. To see who is coming to DLD Munich, visit our website at dld.co and apply for your ticket. As I promised, Baldwin doesn't mince his words. But what to make of his arguments? His main point, I think, is pretty indisputable. He's right to identify 1989 as the last year of the 20th century and the first year of the 21st century both in terms of it being the moment that the Berlin Wall fell and the World Wide Web was invented. And he's right to argue that we got it totally wrong. Rather than representing the end of history and the universal triumph of liberal democracy, 1989 actually represents the beginning of what Baldwin calls an increasingly abusive relationship between technology and politics. So how to fix this abusive relationship? Baldwin's policy recommendations are smart. The banning of political advertising on the internet might be hard to execute, but given the acute vulnerability of the system, essential. The same is true of his arguments in favor of regulating the use and mining of data. 
as well as the legal obligation of social media companies to verify the identities of their users. I was also intrigued by his idea of a tax on Google and Facebook profits, which would then be reinvested back into curated local media. I like his take on the descent of all news media since 1989. That was the year, he reminds us, that Sky News started, and the 24-7 news media became preoccupied with transforming every moment into an overinflated drama. It's not surprising, then, that politics itself has come to reflect this drama, and that we have 24-7-style politicians, like Donald Trump, who are master manipulators of this all-consuming drama. His analysis of the internet is slightly less convincing. He argues that nuance is essential to democracy and that nuance doesn't travel well on the internet. That may be true on public social networks like Twitter and Facebook, but this podcast, for example, prides itself on its nuance. And so does much other long-tail content on the internet. I'm also ambivalent about Baldwin's top-down analysis of democracy. It's the media and the tech community that's the problem, he insists. And so it's newspapers and journalists and TV stations and internet companies, rather than quote-unquote the people, that need to change. As a veteran journalist, however, I suspect that Baldwin gives too much significance to the power of media. He thus sees it as both the problem and the solution to the crisis of democracy. This analysis, I think, lacks nuance. Yes, media matters in today's crisis of democracy, but blaming media is too simplistic. We collectively are the problem, and so it's us, you and I and everyone else, that ultimately needs to change. Next week, we continue this all-important investigation into the crisis of democracy. Our guest is Martin Wolf, the chief economics commentator for the Financial Times newspaper and one of the world's most acclaimed journalists. The irrepressible Wolf will not only lay out what's gone wrong with Western democracy, but he'll also explain how to fix it. I look forward to talking with you then.